If you have a Bible, we're going to be in the book of John, John chapter 11 this morning. Continue a series, towards the end of the series, about Jesus' statements of self-declaration. There's a few times in the way that John tells the story of Jesus' life that Jesus said, I am. And these are the few times that we really get to see exactly who Jesus says he is. And so Jesus says he's the shepherd, he's the gate, he's the way, he's the light, he's the bread. And this morning we hear Jesus, the one who said, I am the resurrection. Let's pray again. God, God, we thank you for what was accomplished on the cross and in the resurrection. We thank you that you paid the debt, that you were victorious, that you freed us, that you created new creation, that you took those who were in darkness and brought them into light. We thank you for all these things that you've done because we couldn't do them for ourselves. And help us to be people who live in light of this resurrection. Pray this in your name. Amen. So there's a, a couple college students who really wanted to live in this one house, but the landlord had a strict no college student policy. And so these, these two college guys went to the landlord and said, we promise we will take really good care of this house. No matter what people have done in the past, we will be exceptional renters. And the landlord begrudgingly says, okay, and lets these two college guys move in. And they say, just don't mess anything up. And they say, we promise we'll take extra good care of it. And so things are going great for the first few months. And then it's late in the fall, and the landlord comes to the, the guys and says, hey, we're going out of town for the weekend. They actually live right next door to each other. The landlord owned the property adjacent to the house that they were renting. And they said, we're going to go out of town, so we want you guys to water... Put water in my daughter's rabbit pen in our backyard. So take good care of my daughter's. My daughter loves the rabbits. So take really good care of all the rabbits in the rabbit pen. And they say, sure, whatever. They still are on their best behavior. Well, the next morning, one of the roommates goes outside and he has a dog. And he sees the dog has something in his mouth and he freaks out. And he looks over and he comes up and he sees his dog and there is a dead rabbit hanging out of the dog's mouth and it's covered in dirt and he is just terrified. And so he grabs his other roommate and says, I don't know what happened. One of the rabbits, it's now in our dog's mouth. What should we do? And the other roommate says, just put it back in the cage. Just put it back in the cage. And the roommate says, okay. And so they put it back in the cage. They put water in there and they just go back as if everything was okay. Well, two days later, the landlord gets home. They don't hear anything. And now they're starting to worry. And so the next day, the landlord has already been home for a whole day. He goes over, he knocks on the door and says, I'm really sorry, but I have to tell you something. I don't know how it happened, but my dog got the rabbit, and I think he killed it. And the landlord said, whew. And the roommate was going, what, what are you talking about? And he said, well... I'm glad you told me because that rabbit had died a week before we buried it and we had no clue how it got back in the cage. <laughs> there are certain things that are supposed to happen. When something is dead, it stays dead. It doesn't make any sense for a dead rabbit to end back up in a cage. It doesn't make sense. We have certain expectations for what's supposed to happen when someone stops living. We all know these. But something happened 2,000 years ago that changed that. Change our expectations about what happens when someone dies. On that day, Jesus was crucified, 
and three days later he rose from the grave. But before that, there was an act in his life that was a sign saying there's something more coming. There's something that's going to happen that's going to change your frame of reference about what happens after someone dies. In John 11, there's the story that sets us all up. If you have a Bible, you can turn there. If not, the words will hopefully be on the screen. In John 11, verse 11... We've got a little technical difficulty. We believe in the resurrection at the end of time, but maybe not in the computer right now. But it happened. After saying this, Jesus told them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I'm going there to awaken him. This disciple said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will be all right. Jesus, however, had been speaking about his death. One of the things that's great about John's gospel is he makes the disciples seem like they don't really understand what's going on. And this is another example of that. But they thought that he was referring merely to sleep. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus is dead. For your sake, I am glad I was not there so that you may believe. But let us go to him. Thomas, who was called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. Thomas very well intentioned. Not very well intellected, though. He doesn't get what Jesus is saying. So eventually, they go to see Lazarus. And he's been dead for four days. And this is what happens when Jesus interacts with one of Martha. With Martha. Starting in verse 21. Let's go to the next slide. Next one. There we go. When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him. While Mary stayed at home, Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now, I know that God will give you whatever you ask of him. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Now, what she's saying is a common belief in the first century for many Jews For all the Jews who followed the Pharisees' teaching, they believed in the resurrection at the end of time. The Sadducees, on the other hand, did not believe in the resurrection, which is why they're sad, you see. Um, But Martha was expressing the common Jewish belief that at the end of the day, at the end of time, there will be resurrection. And Jesus says this, I am the resurrection, and the life. Those who believe in me, even though they die, will live. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God, the one coming into the world. Jesus says, Your hope and your expectation of what things will happen at the end of time, they are all realized in me. Your hope for what you want to have happen at the end, it is found in me. And then Martha makes, up until that point in the book of John, the most full and complete declaration of faith in Jesus when she says, yes, I believe you are the one who's coming. Fast forward a few verses, and this is how the story ends. Then Jesus, again, greatly disturbed, it came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone was lying against it. Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, already there is a stench, because he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? 
So they took away the stone and Jesus looked upward and said, Father, I thank you for having heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I have said this for the sake of the crowd standing here so that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said this, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The dead man came out, his hands and feet bound with strips of cloth and his face wrapped in a cloth. Jesus said to him, said to them, unbind him and let him go. In Jesus, God was taking the old creation and turning it into new creation. In Jesus, we see God is taking that which is dead and making it alive. In Jesus, we see God is taking what is discarded and redeeming it. Lazarus is the first fruit of this new creation that Jesus is bringing to the world of taking things that are made old and resurrecting them and bringing life. Because everyone who believes in him, even though they die, they will live. It's not just something that happens at the end of time. What Jesus is saying is that it happens right now in what I'm doing. When I was a kid... When we were at my grandparents' house, we used to play dominoes. I think it was the game called Chicken Foot. I don't know why it was called Chicken Foot, but that's exactly what we called it. And I loved when this would happen. Not because I really liked the game of Chicken Foot, but I knew whenever we got the big pink blanket that we would put over the dining room table and we'd get out the dominoes, we would have a good time. Partly because I loved being together with my grandfather. And it was a great excuse for us to sit around the table and to joke and to laugh and to tell stories, the family stuff which everyone loves. But the other thing I loved about dominoes is when we weren't actually playing the game dominoes, and my brother and I would take the dominoes out of the box and do the thing which dominoes were created to do. You stack them up, right? And so I know before my grandparents would get to the table, my brother and I could set out these intricate, elaborate designs, which I know you've done the same thing. And at first you just set them out very slapdash. Just put them out fast. But eventually at the end, as you build these elaborate structures and they have levels and towers and steps, you start going a lot slower because you know one thing happens if you put one down incorrectly. They all fall down and your older brother yells at you for having fat fingers and being an idiot. Okay, that's why you take your time. Because when you have the dominoes and they're all out, if one falls down, they all fall. And so you're very careful about how you put them out. Because if one falls, it all comes crashing down. Now, sometimes you hear people talk about faith in the same way. Whether they're people who are proponents of faith, faith or people who are critics of faith. And the argument is, if we can take one domino out, if we can knock one domino down, then it all comes crashing down. And so they say, if there's one contradiction in the Bible, then the whole thing is a contradiction. And you can't trust anything in there. Or there are some people who are proponents of faith and they're arguing for their interpretation of Genesis 1 of how the world was created. And they say, if you don't believe what we think is our interpretation, the only interpretation, if you don't believe this, then you can't trust the Bible. And if you can't trust the Bible, how do you know where you're going to go when you die? Because you can't trust the Bible. And everything would come crashing down. And there's this understanding of faith that everything has to stay up. Every doctrine, every dogma, every belief, otherwise the whole thing is a sham. The problem is that's not really how the Bible's written. That's not how faith is communicated when it's communicated. Well, that's not really the heart of what Christianity is. Not everything is the same. Not everything is of equal importance. Thomas Jefferson 
one of our country's founding fathers, the guy who wrote the Declaration of Independence, or so I think, it's been a long time, I don't really remember, wasn't there, haven't asked Scott recently if it was. He, uh, he wrote a different book, which hasn't been as popular. It's a, a book called The Life and Teachings, The Life and Morals of Jesus of Nazareth. It's become known as the Jefferson Bible, which it's not the same Bible we have, because what Thomas Jefferson did is he expressed his deist worldview. It's a kind of faith that uh, believes God is detached. It's very rational. It's a product of the Enlightenment. And so all the supernatural things that Jesus did, Jefferson didn't like. So it cuts him out. All the religious dogmas, he called it, cut it out. And so all he wanted was the actual facts, facts of Jesus' life and his teachings. And so everything else is secondary to him. He can get rid of that. And so in the Jefferson Bible, you just have good ethical teaching from Jesus. Now, I don't agree with Jefferson's conclusion. I don't. But what I agree with is that not everything's of equal importance. Some things are secondary and some things are primary. I've heard it said that any fool can add, but it takes a wise person to subtract. And you've seen this. You've seen it. It takes the wisdom of a good sculpture to remove the things which disclose and hide the beauty of the piece. It takes the wisdom of a good editor to subtract the things that take away from the story. It takes wisdom for the saleswoman to simplify her pitch. Anyone can add, but it takes true wisdom to subtract. But the thing is, life will give you hints and life will point at you and show you things that you should subtract. How many of us have things in our garage or our attic or in the back of a closet that are just accumulating dust, which years ago we thought, this is going to be an important part of my life. This is going to be a a thing I'm really going to do, and now it just collects dust. If you pay attention, life has a way of saying these things aren't all that important. Sometimes it's the painful things in life that really show you what's truly important. I've told you about my friend Josh Patrick, a 35-year-old pastor with three daughters, who recently was diagnosed with stage 4 colon cancer. Terrible diagnosis no one ever wants to get. And I was talking to him a few weeks ago, and he said, I'm far less certain of a lot of things than I used to be. Life has a way of stripping away the things that you thought you, you were certain about in times of adversity. Uh, the great writer and preacher, Barbara Brown Taylor, uh, has this line in which, Uh, She says this, she says, I cannot say for sure when my reliable ideas about God began to slip away, but the big chest I used to keep them in is smaller than a shoebox now. What Barbara Brown Taylor is saying is that there used to be this whole big chest full of things that I was sure about, things I was certain of, but now the things that I'm 100% confident about have shrunken. I used to add a whole lot to that list, but now it's been reduced. The Apostle Paul talks about it this way. He talks about things that are of first importance. And it's not a big chest full of things. It's not a whole long list, but there's simply one thing. It's not this whole list of dominoes that all have the equal significance, that if one of them falls, they all fall. But simply Paul says there is one thing that matters more than everything else. And this is what it is. 1 Corinthians 15, starting verse 3, Paul says this. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance. 
that Christ died for our sins according to Scripture, according to the Jewish story that is completed by Jesus, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day according to Scriptures, and that He appeared to Caiaphas and then to the Twelve. What Paul says is you might have this long list of things, this long list of dominoes, which you think all matters, but to me there's one thing that's of first importance, and everything else doesn't fit in the shoebox. It's Jesus Christ, crucified, buried, and resurrected. My friend Josh Patrick, when he said, I used to have this whole long list of certainties, but I don't, I'm only certain of one thing now. He says, it's now simply the death, the burial, and the resurrection. The only thing that matters to the level of significance that it matters is that Jesus is the resurrection. Because there is the person who said, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, even though they die, they will live. That is what matters more than everything else. And everything else can fall to the wayside. And when you do that, you realize that life changes. When you understand that's the central piece, you realize that the way you experience life is completely different. Especially when it comes to your desire for things to finally be right. This internal longing that we have for things to be just. Okay, a couple... uh, Actually, it was earlier this week. I, I was in this real tough spot. My wife and I, we have three daughters, and uh, if you've ever had three children and survived, uh, you realize that it's at home, it's kind of a struggle, and uh, I was looking at my calendar, and I, I've got a couple trips coming up. Uh, I've got one trip in a couple weeks to do a conference, and, and I'm leading this panel about preaching to, to people in my age group, and I feel like this is just something God called me to go do, and so I'm going to do it just like a good prophet. Um, it's in Malibu. Um, I mean, I would go, if it was in Tulsa still, I wouldn't stay as long, of course, but I would still go. And, but before that trip, I've got to um, go get another root canal. And so I'm going to have to go get this root canal. And you asked me where I'm staying. And sure, I'm staying on a condo on the beach in Panama City, Florida, um, by myself with no kids. Some of you are going, I would get a root canal every day for that. And I agree. Um, but I was thinking, I get two trips in like the next month for, uh, for like basically to the beach, and my poor wife is staying at home with our three daughters. And it's just not fair. It's not right. And I thought, I really wish there was a way for my wife to have a trip without the kids, and it would even it out. And, um, and Sunday night, uh, there's a family member who is sick in the hospital, and so Lindsay and her sister go down to Austin and they stay there. The family member's okay. And uh, they stay there overnight. And uh, once she calls and says everything's good, I, I'm feeling so much better. And then I thought, oh, look at this. Yeah, sure, you were in a hospital all night with a family member who was sick. But there it is. You got your trip. I've got my trips. It's all even now. Yeah. Yeah. Lord works in mysterious ways. But there's a sense that we want things to be made right. Didn't, didn't Martha say that to Jesus? She said, if you were here, you could have stopped all this. If you were here, you could have fixed it. We want things to be right. Martha says, Jesus, if you were here, it would have been made right. But Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. I will make everything right, even if it looks like a complete mess right now. There was a lady in church history, goes by the name Julian of Norwich, And she has this famous line that has been uh, sung in songs, included in books, countless other places throughout church history. We see this 
700-year-old line, this poem that's been uh, repeated. And she says, All will be well, and all will be well, and all kind of things shall be well. It's this beautiful line that people and poets and songwriters and authors have repeated and gone back to because it sounds so beautiful, this trust that all kinds of things shall be well. This trust that God will make all things right. But you go back to her story, and she's in the 1300s, and we don't even know her name. She's just called Julian of Norwich because she lives in a church in Norwich that's called St. Julian's. And we know that she lives at this church. She's cloisters herself in there because what's going on outside of her is the bubonic plague, the, the black death. And his church historians have said that it's gone through probably about three times to that town. And so if she's like anyone else in her hometown, she has lost all of her friends and her family and her loved ones. And she's cloistered in this, basically this prison cell by herself as everyone around her is dying from the Black Plague. And you go, how can someone write, all shall be well? And it doesn't make any sense unless 1,300 years before her, there was a man in Nazareth who said, I am the resurrection and the life. Everyone who believes in me, even though they die, they shall live. It's the only way it makes sense. Horatio Spuford was a lawyer in Chicago. It was 1870s. His law office was in the northern part of Chicago. He had real estate interests in the area as well. And life was good for Horatio and his wife and their four daughters until the great fires struck Chicago and destroyed his law practice, destroyed his real estate. He's trying to put his life back together, and his wife and his four daughters were on a boat crossing the Atlantic, going on a trip, but he had to stay back and wrap things up back in Chicago, and then he was going to go meet them across the pond, and he gets a telegram from his wife, and it simply says, saved alone. There was an accident, a boat collided with the boat they were on, and all four of his daughters drowned. So he gets on a boat and crosses the ocean, and as the legend has it, just as he's at the point where his daughters drown as the boat sunk in that very location, he comes up with the words, It is well with my soul, and ends up writing that entire hymn that Christians for the last few decades have sung, last century have sung, It is well with my soul, in the very spot that his four daughters drown. And you go, How can someone write about it is well with my soul? And you've lost your four daughters. And the only way that makes sense is if you believe 2,000 years ago, there was a man in Nazareth who said, I am the resurrection and life. Everyone who believes in me, even though they die, they shall live. It's the only way it makes sense. Now, sometimes I hear the critique of Christianity by uh, the group called the New Atheists, people who are building on the work of the psychologist Sigmund Freud. Uh, Freud was the one who said that faith is just wish fulfillment that we wish for these things to happen. And so we're just hoping, <clears throat> and that's all faith really is, is just wish fulfillment. And I think it's a fair critique. We want this to happen. We wish for this to happen. We wish for things to be made right. But when it comes down to it, I'm going to be the one who rests my faith in the person who Ralph Waldo Emerson said, his name, Jesus' name, isn't so much written throughout history as it is plowed through the history of the world. Because you see evidences of the resurrection popping up 
not just in the end, but right now. Lazarus is not the only one who experienced resurrection. You see it right now if you look around. Because there was a man 2,000 years ago who said, I am the resurrection of life. And we continue to see the fruit of this new creation bubbling up. If you have eyes to see. It was uh, 1944. And there was a uh, Japanese soldier. Uh, his name was Hiro Onoda. I'm sure exactly how to pronounce that. And he had uh, been dropped off at a small island in the Philippines in 1944. Just months before, uh, the American soldiers dropped the two atomic bombs, which ended World War II. Well, Hiro Onoda was on the Philippines all by himself. And the atomic bombs had been dropped, but he didn't know anything about it. And so he still believed the war was going on. And so for 27 years, this Japanese soldier acted as though the war was still going on. Until 27 years later, his long-since-retired supervising officer came to the small island of the Philippines and said, Hey, the war's over. You can go home. The funniest part about the story is this guy who fought for 27 years in a war that already ended, his position, his title was he was an intelligence specialist. I don't know how good he was at his job, but he's acting like a war that had already been over was to continue going on. I hope we don't do the same thing. I hope we realize that on the cross, that Jesus, the resurrection and the life, that he was victorious over sin and death. And I hope we have eyes to see resurrection that's popping up all around us. It's the person who was overwhelmed by doubt, but now they have faith. It's the marriage that fizzled out, but now it's bubbling back up. It's that love and that joy which seem to be deadened by circumstances that somehow is reappearing seemingly out of nowhere. Because the resurrection of Lazarus was the first of many. Because God continues to create new creation for people who believe that Jesus is the resurrection and the life. One of the ways that we remind ourselves, one of the ways that we help ourselves see the resurrection is that we go to these tables every morning, every Sunday morning, and we break the bread and we take a cup with a little bit of juice and we remind ourselves of the blood that was shed. And so in a second, I'm going to invite everyone to make their way to these tables and we're going to celebrate communion or Eucharist or whatever you want to call it, the Lord's Supper. And in doing so, we are going to remember collectively that the body of Christ was broken for us and the blood of Christ was shed for us and reminds ourselves that this is the story we are part of. Therefore, even though we die, we will continue to live. Let's pray.